Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Again, we are here with Anthony Harris. I'm doing my another episode of my podcast of Looking Back, Moving Forward. And there's a lot been going on in our country lately, and we're going to get into that a little bit, um, if not in this podcast, one at, at a future date. And I know everybody out there has some, some opinions and some feelings and some thoughts about that. And we're going to get into that. But what I wanted to do in this episode today is, is continue a discussion that I started uh, some time ago about systemic racism and white privilege, and particularly from a white person's perspective. As a black man growing up, uh, a black person growing up in Mississippi and having experienced Jim Crowism firsthand, I understand what systemic racism is because it affected me every day. It still affects me and every other black person in this country. But there, there are times when uh, white people have a, a, a different perspective on it. And, and I think many white people are moving on a journey called moving towards being anti-racist because it's not enough to be against racism or to be non-racist. It's more important to be anti-racist. And as a it's not just a semantic difference between being non-racist and being anti-racist. It, it's, it's, a, it's a qualitatively, fundamentally different uh, construct altogether. So tonight I want to introduce to you a dear friend of mine, Sarah Earhart, who is from the area here. And I, Sarah and I have been friends for a few years, maybe longer than a few years, Sarah. I'm not sure it's been, we've known each other for some time. We were uh, both members of a, of a uh, Toastmasters Club, outspoken Toastmasters in the in the Woodlands area, and Sarah and I've had many many conversations about race, about racism, and she she always we would we would just have dinner or lunch sometimes, and she just I just need to pick your brain, tell me about this. I'm I'm struggling with I don't understand as I I'm trying to sort out these things. So I I wanted uh, Sarah to to be a part of this conversation tonight to have her talk about her journey uh, uh, towards being anti-racism. And it is a journey, it's not a destination. It's, it's a journey that you're on, obviously. And I want you to share with, with our listeners <clears throat> the, uh, the genesis of that, of that journey. How did it get started? When did it get started? Where were you when, when it got started? And just go back as far as you want to go. And, and we'll just move up to the present time and we'll, we'll see how that goes, okay? So welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you so much for having me on here. And I really, I treasure our friendship. I'm so thankful for you and you've helped me so much on my journey to become anti-racist. My journey towards becoming anti-racist started a very long time ago when I was a kid. My family lived in Western Pennsylvania for most of my life in Pittsburgh and they did foster care. So we had only black children that lived in our home and I am white and my parents are white and my siblings are white. And there's no mistaking that we all looked very different from the foster kids that were coming and living in our home. The neighborhoods where we lived, they were also 100% white. There were no people of color, not just black people, but Asian people, Indian people, the they, they just were not there. And I belonged to a church, my dad was a pastor, and I belonged to a church that was all white. And the first time that I remember race being an issue was when we had a foster kid and I was maybe five and I went to church, it was an evening service and I went to church with this foster kid and I was sitting in the pew with her and one of the elderly women came over and she looked at the baby and she said to me, she's so cute. How black is she? Oh my goodness, how black and is she? I okay. looked at this woman and my little five-year-old brain could not comprehend what she was asking. I didn't view my foster siblings or siblings as white or black, they were my siblings. I didn't understand. So I asked her, like, what are you talking about? What do you mean? She's like, well, is she black? She doesn't look black. Is her, are her parents white? 
And so I finally caught on to what she was saying because the foster child was biracial. Her mother was black and her father was white. And I think I explained that to her. And that's as far as that memory goes. But it has stuck with me all of these years. And then it just continued to progress from there. We lived in a neighborhood where no one talked to me or my siblings and we really weren't allowed to play with the other kids. We were shunned, the neighbors didn't talk to us. And I didn't know it at the time, but as I grew up, I, it was explained to me that the neighbors didn't like us because we were the only house on that street that had black people coming and going to visit the foster kids that were living in our home. So the way foster care worked back in those days in Pennsylvania, I don't know how it is in Texas here, but in Pennsylvania, they would go up, the children would be put up for adoption. And then the parents that were going to adopt them would come and visit usually for a couple months at a time, once or twice a week. So the child would get to know their adoptive parents before they went and lived there permanently with their adoptive parents. But all the adoptive parents were all black except for one mother who was white, who did end up adopting, ironically, the only biracial child that we ever had. And that stuck with me as well, that the white mother was allowed to adopt this biracial child, but then all the other children were adopted by black families. Mm. And I remember as a kid, not really understanding what was happening, but it stuck out to me for a long time about why that is. And then so, like, so uh, the biracial child <clears throat> could only be fostered by a white family. Is that what you're saying? I am not sure about okay. that. I think that the, my view as a child was that their goal was to provide the biracial child to a white family. But in Pennsylvania in those days, it didn't seem like black children for the most part were ever being adopted to any other families except black people. Unless it, that was the case in our family. So there was 20 some kids that came and went mm. and all of the black children in our family, I can only speak from our experience, were adopted by black families. And that was just the way it was. And it was interesting because we lived in on this one street for many years. I think it was six or seven years. And we, as children, were not welcome in that neighborhood whatsoever. And I think it was because we were guilty by association with Black people, and they viewed that as very bad for their neighborhood. So what age are we talking about, you and, and your... Age your... of two to around nine or ten. Okay. This is the way it was. And then we moved to another neighborhood and it again was all white people, but it was a lower class white neighborhood. So there were less, I guess, issues with black people coming and going from our house compared to the other neighborhood where they really were not okay with it. But it was slightly higher class neighborhood. Hmm, okay. It was very obvious to me as a child that this was not accepted. And then I became a teenager. And as a teenager, I spent a tremendous amount of time watching my foster siblings. I was like a second mother to them. My mother was working full time. My father was often out of the house. So someone had to be taking care of these children. And my sister and I spent a lot of time caretaking these foster kids, mm -hmm. which, and they were all black. And the difficulty was, is that my sister and I were always assumed to be young white teenagers knocked up by a black man because we had <laughs> black kids with us. So they thought you were, were the biological yes. parents of these, these black biracial kids and, and had yes. black fathers, okay. <clears throat> And we would go, there's two instances that stand out in my mind. And I was maybe 12 or 13 at the time. So one is I went into a public library and the librarian looked at me and said, oh no, we don't have room for those kids hmm. in our story time. This is a public library. This is an open story time to any children that wanted to come and go. And you're still in Pennsylvania at this time, right? So this happened in the state of Illinois. In Illinois, okay, all right. But it was a big city. It wasn't a small area. Okay. We'd gone to visit my grandparents and I took the kids to a local library to go to a story time. It was in Peoria. 
And we were told, no, we weren't allowed to join. But then when all the white kids had finally left, then the librarian seemed to feel a little bad. So she came over and said, oh, well, there's some leftover candy. Would the kids like some candy? And I was so irate. I took those kids and walked out and said, absolutely not. They don't want any of that candy and left the library. Good and I didn't go back to that library again. I was so angry. And then the second one that I remember is I went to a public mall and I had two black foster kids with me. They were twins. And I was walking through the mall with them on both sides of me holding their hand. And I went into a store and a man approached me and he was like, no, we don't have anything in this store for you. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm just here to look around. They're like, no, we're gonna ask you to leave. So I left because I didn't know what to do as a 12, 13 year old kid. But it was because I was with two black kids and it became very apparent to me very young that race plays a huge part in the interactions in our society, where you're accepted, where you're not accepted. It was very clear to me. And then my aunt who is Korean, she got pregnant and married a black man and she had a son who was about my age. So him and I grew up together. We were pretty close. We spent a lot of time together when I went to visit my grandparents. And he looked like a black teenage boy, black man. And the same thing happened with him where they would assume that I was dating him and that I would be asked on the side, are you okay? Or mm. pulled us over, or, or is he hurting you? That type of thing. So he was being profiled as maybe as a predator and you were a victim, um, someone who's being victimized by this predatory black guy. And this is somebody you've been, you've been knowing a long time. You are just friends. Yes. And this happened in college as well. I had a couple college buddies that they were black men. And we, I remember one time I was sitting in the student union and I was talking with my friend and one of the security officers asked me, are you okay? Is everything okay? Because it was at night, it was dark. And he made the assumption that this friend of mine was going to harm me in some way. And I don't believe that would have ever happened had he been a white male. Friend. Exactly, yeah. And that never did happen with any of my white friends, but it has happened with my black friends more than once. And you were, was this Illinois? No, this was in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, going back. And, yeah. and I guess that's a good illustration of something that those of us who grew up in the South, that racism is not confined to the South. There's racist behavior, racist attitudes, those kinds of things you just talked about from your taking your two foster siblings into the store and being immediately told, no, you can't shop in here to now you're back in Pennsylvania and they think you're with this, you have some black friends, black male friends, they must be up to no good. You, you, you're, you're obviously uh, being a victim of some kind of crime here. That's, that, that, stuff, that, that stuff happens everywhere, yeah. It does. It was shocking to me as a kid. I was probably eight or nine and I remember going to a family gathering and a family member said to me about my foster siblings, ooh, get them away from me. They have mm. booties. Mm. I'm not talking about a family member that was super young. I think they were maybe in their teens in high school, maybe middle school at the time, but they were old enough to know and to be taught. Mm -hmm. I remember that when this happened, no one said anything. They kind of laughed it off. And as a kid, I was horrified because those are my siblings. And I remember snapping at that family member and then I got told to, well, you need to be nice, <laughs> et cetera. Yeah. Sarah, the troublemaker here. Yeah. <laughs> and then I went and became a teacher in the inner city and all of my students were students of color. Mm -hmm. This too occurred again where I remember we took them on a trip out west in West Texas to go out on a spring trip. And the bus of students of color, we were pulled over. And it was my judgment, I don't have any proof behind this, but in my judgment, 
the police officer that was in that small town was not happy to have a bus full of students of color coming through there with a bus driver who was also a man of color. And so he stopped us on purpose to give us the message that he didn't really like us being there. Mm -hmm. he, the bus driver had not broken any laws that I could see. I remember asking the police officer, why are you stopping us? What did he do that was wrong? And I was never given an answer. So what, what did, did he think you were in any kind of danger or something? Was this the case where he was concerned about your safety? The police officer was just extremely unfriendly with me as well. Okay. And I think my other teachers that were with me, because they were white women as well. And they, he just seemed very unhappy about the entire situation. Mm -hmm. And he called another guy who was in charge of, I don't remember what the department is, to check motor vehicles, to check all over this bus, to see if there was something that was violating the law mm -hmm. with this bus. Even though we were just in a school bus passing through a town to go on to our destination. Wow. It was a lot of rigmarole for no reason at all. So you've been having these experiences uh, where you have encountered racism. Mm -hmm. You have observed it. You have uh, been present when you have seen black people, other people of color being victimized by it. And, and it starts when you are, are just a kid mm -hmm. and your mind, you, you're starting to think, wait a minute, something isn't right here. You know, this, this is, race is, a, is an issue here because the only reason they're being treated differently obviously is the color of their skin, right? And, and you see that thread and that pattern continue from your childhood all the way, now you're up to college where you, and, and not just college, but in your capacity as a teacher and going on a field trip as something as innocent as a, and, and as a field trip these these white officers uh, thought that was something untoward about having black folk, uh, uh, folk of color coming through his little town. Yeah, they were Hispanic and, and black people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember from a very young age, it struck me as wrong, but I struggled a lot as a child and even as an adult. I still struggle with this and is part of my journey to becoming an anti-racist is I struggle with offending people. I struggle with accusing people and I struggle with approaching people that are racist in a very strong or accusatory way because I feel like it, they're, then they shut off and they don't listen to me and then I don't get anywhere with them. But then I also struggle, where does it, where am I being quiet, which is then in their minds is tacit approval of their horrible behavior. And this is something that I've struggled with my whole life and I still struggle with to this day. How to be anti-racist in a way that other white people who are being racist or just not saying anything at all and it's giving a sort of approval to this type of behavior, how to get them to listen to me and hopefully start to go on their own journey, to be aware and become an anti-racist as well. What have you found that works maybe just a little bit? The one thing that I have in the past year or so in all of the reading that I've done, and I read White Fragility and a number of other books, the one thing that I have found is that people, all people, have a need to be heard. They want their point of view, as wrong as I might personally think it is, they want to be heard. And they want you to listen to all of their reasons, their whys and wherefores of where their racist, racism came from. And once they feel heard and maybe not judge, I, I don't know how to say this where it doesn't sound like I'm approving, I'm not approving, but also if they feel horribly judged and accused, then they'll shut down and they won't talk to me. So I try very hard to 
hear them and then say as calmly as possible, I hear what you're saying, but I don't agree with it. And this is the reason why. Would you permit me to share why in my white opinion, in my white experiences of racism, which are very minimal compared to yours, Anthony. Mine are very minimal. And yet I've been scarred by this and I have a, a sense of distrust with police and I don't trust them when they stop me. I don't trust them when they stop my friends of color and black people because I know I have witnessed this and it's been very minor for me personally. Mm -hmm. And I just, but I want people to change. And I think the only way people change is to feel heard and then trusting enough to have an open conversation. And an you have to, yeah, you have to do the ca this calculus. Uh, obviously, if, if, when you hear someone utter a racist slur, for example, or make a, 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 a racial joke that's, that's, that's racist, mm -hmm. you, the calculus that in your head is, do I keep my mouth shut? Mm -hmm. Or do I speak up? And if I keep my mouth shut, are they going to interpret my silence as tacit approval that, aha, Sarah's not objecting, so she must think it's okay for me to say that. And that's not what you, that's not what your heart wants you to do. No, but on the other hand, I don't want to object in an accusatory way that shuts down the entire conversation because I don't feel that that is beneficial in changing this systemic racism that we have in this country. I know a lot of white people that really feel strongly about their racist opinions. They really think they're justified. And a number of them use God to justify them. They use their own opinions of politics to justify them. And they're not easily swayed an example of this would be my grandfather. Me and my grandfather were very close. I used to call him every Friday and he was the one I would go visit in Illinois. And I loved him very dearly. And I even named my son after him. It's my son's middle name. But my grandfather grew up in rural Illinois and he was racist. He didn't see black people. He didn't interact with them. So he became an adult who then would say from time to time what we would consider now racist statements. And I became an adult and I loved him very dearly, but I didn't always agree with his racial opinions. And even with the foster kids, he would sometimes say things I really didn't agree with. And as I became an adult and we became closer and I could have an open conversation with him where he didn't feel accused and attacked, and I felt I could say and share my thoughts and views. I noticed over the course of my adult life, he slowly would shift, and he did shift. And even towards the end of his life, one time he said to me, I'm really sorry for some of the things that I said. I didn't know any better. And I do believe in a way, when he was young, being raised in rural Illinois on a farm, maybe he didn't know any better. But the only way to change someone like that was through relationship and conversation and hearing and having more difficult conversations. And he had to trust me and I had to trust him. And you had the advantage of having a relationship, a pre-existing relationship with him. And there were emotions, there was, there was love, there was trust, there, were, there was communication. But and I think that is, it, it, I'm go ahead, I'm sorry. It, it makes me feel though that perhaps some people that are very entrenched in being in racism and in the systemic racism in this country, maybe there is a way to help sway them and change their minds, but it probably does need to come through listening and relationship and trust. And I think you were fortunate that you're, you had the patience, you had the love, you had the commitment and trust and communications. But obviously there are those family dynamics that are not like that. Yeah. Uh, there are people who don't want to change and trying to reason with someone who is unreasonable is, and you know this, it's, 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 it's futile. It's just, it's counterproductive. And how do you, I mean, 
in the example with your grandfather, you, you, you had the advantage of having this lifelong relationship with him. But what about that person with whom you don't have that kind of involvement? This is a white person perhaps you work with, somebody um, at the soccer game or, or whatever. Do, is it easier to open your mouth and say something or do you find that I need to get this person to listen to me? You don't have the advantage of, of time to develop, to go through all these processes and steps and growth periods and so forth. So talk about that a little bit. And this is where I have to admit where I've made mistakes in my lifetime as an adult. I have been in grocery stores where a white clerk has thrown groceries of a black person. It's been very rude and obnoxious, but then when I come through, they've been perfectly polite and kind. And I haven't said anything about that. And I have to say, uh, this is something that I have struggled with a lot. I don't have a relationship with that person, with that clerk. Mm -hmm. So then when do I say something and when do I not? In the past, so this year is different, but in the past, before 2020, I probably would have chosen to just be quiet. Mm -hmm. What's the point? They're not going to listen to me. I don't know them, they don't know me, and I'm just going to become the object of their wrath. So I would just never say anything at all. And in this journey of becoming an anti-racist, now I'm still a little bit in that place where I look at it and I ask, is it worth it? Is this going to help or is it going to make it worse for the black person or the person of color that I'm trying to defend? And I do have to ask myself that because I've had some black friends that have told me that they would prefer in some circumstances, no, because it just makes it worse for them. And they would prefer just to leave, be done with it and walk away. It reminds me of, um, and you've traveled abroad too. Um, uh, and lived abroad. Yeah, and you lived abroad. And, and I, I took a trip one time to, to South Africa and I was with a group of, there were probably five of us in the group and three of us were black and two were white. And, and there was this white woman in our group who wanted to be an advocate and a supporter of, of us black people in this racist country. And we stopped at this restaurant and because our races, we were different races, black, white, and of course I would have been considered colored. So we had black people, colored people, and white people riding in the same automobiles, which was, was awful for them. And these, these white guys, these Afrikaners, they were standing in a parking lot, pointing their fingers at us, shaking their fists at us, and, and just saying all these ugly things to us. And, and as black people in the group, we just wanted to, look, let's just get in this car and leave, okay? But our white friend she wanted to show what a strong advocate and she wasn't going to back down she started yelling back at these guys mm -hmm. okay and we had to say look don't do that okay you you are you're going to i'm not sure what they'll do to you but we have a pretty good idea of what they will do to us because they had us outnumbered this was their country and we are guests there so uh, she was one of those people, I think, at the time, this was back in the late 80s, who was uh, very much on that anti-racist uh, journey, even though they didn't call it that at that time. But it, it illustrates what you were talking about. You know, sometimes you have to wonder, if I say something, am I helping? If I say something, am I going to make it worse? And, and I think you... Her white privilege, that she thought she could do that and nothing bad would happen to her. Right. That is a white privilege in and of itself. Exactly right. Because she, it never occurred to her that she had that privilege of being a white person to not have fear of these white guys. And, but we, as, as black people, we knew because we came from the South, the three of us, we were, we were from the South. We grew up in, in with Jim Crowism. So um, I think that's a good point uh, that sometimes people who, who are in the role of being an advocate and being a, 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 a supporter, they sometimes can, if they don't handle it properly, 
can end up making things worse. But here's the thing that I, I, I encourage people to do when they're trying to figure out what can I do, mm -hmm. okay? And, and understand that there's interpersonal racism. You know, that's the grocery store kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And then there's this racism that is institutionalized in policy because there are so many policies that are um, promulgated and, 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 and passed by governmental agencies that have the direct intention of keeping certain groups oppressed. Yes. And you take the GI Bill, for example, after, after uh, World War II, um, black soldiers, over a million black soldiers were not able to receive the benefits of uh, bank loans to start a business, uh, money for college, mortgage assistance and all that stuff. And, and that was policy that affected those people. Now, sure, those white people probably would have said all kinds of N-words and that kind of thing, but, and, and at some, I'm not condoning that by any means, but sometimes we think, well, you know, that person's an idiot. But the next time we think about who am I going to vote for? Uh, who's going to get my vote, <laughs> okay? What policy are they advancing? How do they stand on a policy of separating children from their parents on the border? Absolutely. What are their, what are their policy regarding uh, redlining and uh, profiling and all those kinds of things? That's where we can really start to make a difference, I think. Those interpersonal issues, I mean, people go... People are just going to be stupid. Okay, let me put it. They're just going to be stupid. They're going to say stupid things, and 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 we have to figure out: am I say something or not say something? But I think that where we can make the greatest progress and make the biggest difference is is looking at policies that were developed because of systemic racism. Does that make sense? I agree with you, and I would take it a step further that not only should I, as a white person be researching that and figuring out what these candidates stand for and voting on that based on who these people are, what their history of voting on a policy is, I should be doing that personally right. and making sure they're not racist and they're actually anti-racist. But on top of that, then in my relationships with other people, trying to educate friends, provide them data, and talking about that in my circle is also important because I have a number of white friends that this election, I did talk to them about that. And it's the first time in my adult life that I've ever brought those subjects up with a large number of friends. And some of them just said to me, oh, I never even thought mm -hmm. to research that. So they're not racist, but they may not have taken it to a point of checking on the facts. What is this candidate actually doing when they're in office? And so it also goes to education. It's really important that this is talked about on a regular basis and then educate others in your relationships on how to go about making, hopefully, mm -hmm. better choices when it comes to candidates that will be changing the systems in this country. Right, you know, you know, we were talking about white privilege, and when you hear that term "white privilege," what comes to your mind? How how do if someone said, "Sarah, explain to me," I don't understand what white privilege is. What do you say to them? That is a very good question, Anthony. And, and I, I know you have a good answer. Come on. Textbook <laughs> response, and I could give it to you that I read on a piece of paper. But what it means to me is the innate privilege that I get by walking out my front door with light colored eyes, white skin, and light hair that's not kinky. Because I walk out my front door looking that way, people make an assumption about who I am, how safe I am, whether or not I pose a threat, all of those types of things. When I drive my car, I don't get randomly pulled over on a regular basis, taken out of my car, frisked, asked questions. Are you harming the person that's in your car? This has never happened to me, but my black friends, this has happened to many times. 
I have a friend of mine, she has young children. She was walking through a Walmart parking lot and someone yelled the N word at her in front of her children. This happened just this last year. This is white privilege. I go about my day-to-day -day life and I don't have to worry about any of those things. It's never happened to me. And when I became acutely aware of the fact that I lost my white privilege as a teenager and when I was younger because I was associated with black people and I was with black people and I kind of lost it for a time because those people in those areas didn't like that. It really struck me. This was only a few isolated incidents. Imagine if that was my life. Mm -hmm. This is white privilege. I don't even realize it, how much white privilege I have. I think I shared with you that I was taking my daughter to school and uh, we bike to school. And there's this one area that is in a, not wooded, but it's not on a road. It's going behind some houses next to a drainage ditch in Houston. And I took my daughter to school and I was coming back. And when I approached this area, there was a black boy who was probably 16, 17. And as soon as he saw me, he seemed very alarmed to see me there and kind of backed up and seemed extremely uncomfortable. And this is white privilege. I go back and forth, back and forth with my daughter, who's also white, blonde hair, blue eyed, never a concern in the world. Mm -hmm. He sees me back there one day and you can see the instant fear in this kid's eyes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he's thinking, answer, but it's, yeah. Yeah. I, I saw, and you may have seen this uh, somewhere on social media, someone who was in denial about the existence of white privilege. Mm -hmm. And they had, they had a picture of a very poor white family in this rundown house. They were all sitting on the porch, mm -hmm. obviously very, very poor. And, and the person who sent that meme out was suggesting this family is not privileged. This person is white. They're not privileged, you know, so much for white privilege. And that was basically what they were, were talking about, the message they were trying to convey. But I would say to that person, okay, put that picture aside of this poor white family. And I want you to imagine another picture where you have a poor black family, similar kind of house, similar conditions. I would bet my next paycheck that for that white family, their poverty has nothing to do with their race. That black family, I would bet my next paycheck, their, their poverty and being poor has everything to do with their race. Therein lies white privilege because so many times uh, when you hear white privilege, white people focus on the privilege part of that phrase and not the white part. Okay? They just think about privilege. Well, no, there are two parts to that. There's white and then there's privilege. And if you're only going to think about the privilege and not about the white part, you miss the, you miss the whole meaning of it, right? For sure. And Anthony, I have a slightly different response to that because I had a number of friends send the same thing to me and I am a white woman. And I grew up very poor. I did not have a lot of stuff. We did not, we just did not. I mean, I started working at a very young age. We did not have a lot of money. My parents had five kids and we often had two foster kids and we were not some picture of privilege by any means. And I often say to people that I still had so much more privilege that any of those black foster kids that came in and out of our house or my cousin who was black or my family members that are of color because there is automatic judgments being made on those people of color or black people that were not made about me. And this seems to resonate with some of my white friends that struggle with this idea of white privilege. It seems to be something they can relate to because they know me. Yeah, I think what helps, I think particularly white women understand white privilege is that there is such a thing as gender privilege because there's some privileges as a man 
I have that I didn't earn just simply by being born male. There are certain privileges that accrue to me that you as a woman, they don't accrue to you. No, they don't. And, and I think if, if, if some white women particularly can, can see that there's, that's the same side, a different size to the same coin, mm -hmm. that gender privilege and white privilege, there's, there's hardly any difference there, right? Exactly. I've used this argument as well with some of my female friends, because we as mothers, we have experienced the discrimination of being a mother, of having children. I was told by someone that I applied for a job and they said to me, oh, if you're of childbearing age, no, we don't want to hire you because we know you're going to have another kid. Hmm. I said that to my face. And I know a number of friends that this has happened to them as well, something along those lines. And that's been helpful because then they can say, okay, I see how that feels, except this is now race, not gender. Right. I do think that in this discussion about race, if it can be put in a way that is personal and the person understands is something that would make sense to them in their life, they're more willing than to hear what you're saying. Let me ask you this, and I think I know the answer, but I'm just putting it out here for a discussion. As you reflect on the last four years, mm -hmm. how do you assess, evaluate the racial landscape in our country? Um, what, what have been, what's gone right, what's gone wrong? Oh. That is a, That's a loaded question. Very loaded. Um, I think that one of the things that has gone right is there seems to be, even in the last year, more awareness, more national awareness with the BLM protests and this being publicized and you can see it all over in social media and on the news. I do think that that has been positive to bring to light that this is still happening and have people standing up, white people included, standing up and saying, this needs to stop. Enough is enough. So that's the positive side of it. And I've seen a lot of progress and recognition of this even in the past year. And a lot of that came about after George Floyd. Yes. Execution. Yes. Mm -hmm. And while that was horrible, what happened to George Floyd, I am thankful, on the other hand, it was a catalyst to open up this very important conversation that needs to happen across our entire nation. Things need to change. The system is very broken and it needs to stop. I see it in education, funding of schools. And if you look who lives in the poorer communities, it's often people of color. But then the funding for those schools, that those schools need more funding, not less funding, but they're getting less funding because of the property taxes in that area. It's the whole system is set up to fail these kids who need the most help sometimes. It's really awful. As an educator, it just blows my mind that as a first world country who, with all these great minds in it, we can't solve a simple problem with making equal education for all. Is that intentional, you think? I or is think that just. Is. I think it is. Well, I'm going to amend my statement. I think it was intentional when it was set up. And it's been that way for so long that oftentimes it just stays that way. It's just the way it is. And there's not a lot of pushback or questioning or changes being forced. Mm -hmm. And that has to come though from a high level of voted, we have the people we vote for have to make these changes. Yeah, they, they do. And they aren't going to make them unless voters and the message, you know, yeah. and I, I think that's one of the reasons we have a new president coming in next Wednesday is that people just got tired of the racism, got tired of the, the narcissism. They just got tired of the divisiveness, the name calling, um, 
the petulance, the lying, all of those things that characterize the last four years of Trump's administration, or the, the last four years. Of course, he's not going to have another administration, but his 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 time in office, I think, you know, it it he did not he did not create and he did not cause racism in this country. He just revealed it. Hmm, go ahead. It was already there. Yes. And and he just pulled the he just pulled the curtain back, and and a, and told those people who were behind the curtain, it's okay for you guys to come out now. Come on, you can. I'm I'm with you. You're with me. You voted for me, and uh, I understand your anger. Understand your your insecurities about your future, and you think it's those black and brown people and Muslims who are causing all of your problems. Vote for me, and I'll make sure they. We put them in their places and people bought into that nonsense. So I think one of the things that you know, those last four years have, have shown us is that we can't, we can't take things for granted. And I think that's a mistake that some of us made, you know, following two terms of a black president, even though very few of us were so naive to think that having President Obama in office somehow returned the corner on racism. No, <laughs> you know, that's, that was not the case. And, and it's amazing how we have gone from one, one place on the political spectrum of saying, okay, boy, America has elected a black president for the first time ever. And, and then after those eight years, look, we get somebody in there who is diametrically opposed and, and, and just the opposite of, of what we had the previous eight years. Um, do you think we've learned a lesson as a country? And I what have we learned? What lesson have we learned? If you have I think that perhaps half of the country has learned a valuable <laughs> lesson, but my concern as a citizen of this country is the other half and it is about half of the country that voted for Trump. That concerns me a lot because for me, it is a matter of the heart. When I look at my president and I look at any good leader around the world and I've been around the world and I've lived on the other side of the world and I've seen many different types of leaders and I even studied a lot of these leaders that were very fascist in one of my degrees. I got a degree in Latin American studies. So I had to study Cuba and Nicaragua and Chile and Argentina and all what happened in their political collapse. And for me, this is a matter of the heart. When you look at a president and you look at the words that a president says, he is the leader of a nation. His words matter a lot. His words will either unite a country or they will divide a country. And people listen because he is, the in this country, he is respected as the person you listen to. If you think of 9-11, of course, everyone tuned in and they were listening to Bush. What did Bush have to say about this horrible thing that had happened? The same thing happened in World War II. The whole country was tuning in to hear what this president had to say. So COVID happened. And like most Americans, I started tuning in to the updates we were receiving. Now, I'm not like half the country. I had already realized I didn't agree with much of what Trump had to say. And I found it very divisive and often very racist. But I was shocked when I was listening to him on a daily basis, what was coming out of his mouth. There was no understanding for the plight of a nation, the suffering of a nation. There was no message of this country is struggling with racism. We're having these protests. We need to support each other. We need to listen to each other. There was none of this coming from the leader of our nation. And that's powerful. When you have a leader who is spewing divisive statements right and left, going on social media and igniting all of these young people with a lot of feelings. And this has been a tough year. 2020 was tough. And then they're igniting this anger and this, this problem of the heart 
into violence. It's not okay. What gets you hope for the future then? Or do you have hope for the future? I do have hope for the future because I've, I've noticed in the past year, just the number of personal conversations that I have had with people about race and the systems in this country that have never happened before in my lifetime. Some people never even voted before and they showed up and they voted in this election and really made a point to look at all the candidates and choose the best ones. Mm -hmm. And this is progress to see that happening. I think that that's important because lots of people voted you know, Biden and Kamala Harris got the most votes of any president in history, any winning president. But at the same time, uh, the losing president got more votes than any losing president in the history of this country. And as I often say, and I've done some you know, some episodes in my podcast about this, is those 70 some odd million people, what were they thinking? What they were trying to say is that we want four more years of what we just had. We want four more years of lying, of bullying, of all of those divisive things, the racism. I mean, you think back to when the Charlottesville incident happened at the University of Virginia, and these guys, these these um, neo-Nazis and neo-Confederates are walking around with their tiki torches saying other things about Jews and black people. And, and Trump says, well, there were good people on both sides. Now what's good and what's fine about people who are spewing this stuff. So, and then with the proud boys, he tells them to stand back, stand, ba- stand back and stand down or something to that effect. But you're right, words have consequences. Walter followed it up on January 6th saying, uh, we love you. Yes. Which is giving again, tacit approval to, or not even tacit, very verbal approval yeah. of not terrible behavior. Yeah, that was not dog whistle uh, language. That was uh, a bullhorn go out and, and he knew what he was doing. He knew there were neo-Nazis, there were uh, neo-Confederates. Um, he knew there were extremists, uh, anarchists uh, from the right. He knew that. He did. And, and, and he, he one of the things so interesting about his speech, he, he said, I'm going, you need to go to the Capitol and take your country back. Take, you know, you, you have to be strong. And I'm going to go down there with you. I'm going to go to the Capitol with you. And these people believe that Trump was going to go down with them and take over the Capitol. And if you notice, Trump was not down there. No, the guy, the, I mean, bullies tend to be cowards anyway. And he got in his car and he went back to the White House and the reporters say he just watched television and was just so full of himself and looking at these people doing all these crazy things, knowing that they were doing it because of what he told them to do. Well, Look how powerful I am. Look, I can get these people to go out and, and, and trash the Capitol. They are, and just think of the ego boost that gives you where you think I am so powerful that I can get all of these people to go out and do foolish things. And what blows my mind is the, the senators and the representatives that have been in Trump's quarter, corner this whole time protecting him and not holding him accountable. These were the very people that were in danger in the Capitol. Yes. They're supposed to be the people that Trump supports and are in his corner and they're supposed to have each other's back mm-hmm. that too struck me when i was watching all of this how is any of this acceptable on any side it doesn't to me this doesn't make any sense but it does if you're looking at trump's rhetoric over four years mm-hmm. and how he has stirred the nation up and given a voice and given license and empowerment to racist groups because their behaviors have been accepted publicly. And then that grows organizations like that when they're getting public acceptance from the highest person in the country. Right. You know, that brings us back to, brings us back full circle to our conversation starting out about systemic racism. And then we can tie that into what happened on Wednesday. Mm 
And one of the things that I think we both agree and we've heard lots of people talking about it. I saw it the first, as I was sitting here where I'm sitting now watching it on television, I said, had that been a group of black protesters, BLM, whomever, and tore down things in the, in the Capitol, beat up police, did all the crazy stuff these people did. I have to, I, not I have to believe, I do believe that they would have been treated much differently than these mainly white rioters what happened then when they went in. And I think that's, I, I told somebody, if you want to see white privilege, you just saw it there, okay? Absolutely. I agree with you. If it would have been a crowd of black people and people of color who had done that, it would not have happened that way. Absolutely not. Well, you look at happened, what happened last summer, BLM, uh, they, they were tear gassed. They, some were shot with rubber bullets because Trump wanted to, clear a path to go over to this church and hold up a Bible upside down as a prop. And uh, all those people, Bill Barr and others, they just said, let's, let's just clear all these. I mean, they were, these, these people, the BLM people were being peaceful in their protesting. They weren't rioting. They weren't, they weren't tearing up anything. They were just peacefully in the park and they just, uh, anyway, that's that's white privilege. A military presence that was there during the summer with peaceful protesters. I said to my husband more than a week, two weeks before this even happened, I wonder what the Capitol is doing to prepare for the unrest. So on January 6th, when I was sitting watching the news at night, watching all of this go down, I was shocked because why wouldn't they have a strong military National Guard presence when they knew that this was coming? But there wasn't, or at least the response was not quick enough, which begs the question, why is that? Well, they saw these, these people as mainly white and uh, they were not going to, mm -hmm. and, and that's that, that racist mindset, I think, you know, they're not going to be violent because the only violent people are, are black people. And that's that, that racist caricature and belief and stereotype. And they said, okay, this is going to be, you know, they're Trump people, they're, they're white and they don't, they don't appear to be a threat to anybody. Yes, they were. And they knew in advance that they were going to be a threat. And I think, again, it's, had that been a black, a group of black people breaking into the Capitol, or if that had been a Barack Obama urging people to go to the Capitol, just think of, of how the response would be. I, I generally say to people, well, what, what would you, when you say I'm criticizing Trump, what would you say if Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton or Bill Clinton had done or said just what, um, Donald Trump said, then he said, well, you know, I, they, he wouldn't do that. Yeah, come on. <laughs> white privilege too, that the, the security forces, National Guard, Secret Service, whoever it was that was in charge of securing the Capitol, that they didn't even think that this huge mob of people was going to cause any significant violence. That they even had that idea, that's also white privilege. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And, and, I, and I think it, it's, a, it's another illustration of, of something. And I know you, you've been on this journey. And, and I think as you go on this journey, it's important to always be prepared to stay on the journey, prepare yourself, steal yourself to go on that journey. Because again, it's a journey. It's, it's, it's been around a long time and, and we have to continue to do that. And they're always going to be the Donald Trumps of the world and uh, the proud boys of the world and all of those right-wing groups that, that hate just because of the, the color of a person's skin, they're going to be there. And I, I just commend you and, and others who, who see a role as a white person in this struggle for social justice and racial equality. And, and I just 
urge you to continue that. Uh, stay the course. I know it gets a lot of, it gets a little um, challenging sometimes, but also think about if you think it's hard for you, think about what it's like for black folk who are struggling with this nonsense. Because, you know, as you said, you have the privilege of, of being white and you can, if you wanted to, you could just ignore this stuff. You could go on and go to your home and never have to deal with this and your life would be just fine. But I think once you make that commitment to being on that journey towards being an anti-racist, um, it takes commitment because I, I describe it sometimes as being like running a marathon in mud. You know, you sometimes you feel like you're making progress and you feel sometimes you feel like you aren't making progress. But look, I want to thank you once again. We, we've been here almost an hour now, pretty close to an hour. Time flies when you're having fun. And I want to thank you once again for sharing your feelings and sharing your thoughts and about your, your upbringing and um, with your, your foster uh, siblings and, and how at an early age you had encounters with, with race and racist and began to realize that there are racial differences and there's, there's value judgments behind those racial differences. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you know this person is black and this person is, 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 this person's skin color is different. It's not just as different, that person is going to be treated differently. And then you, you realize that your race is not something you can change. And, and that's black skin that you were born with is going to be with you all your life. And, and we just have to find a way to, um, you know, get through it. And, and, and not just get through it, but change it as we're getting through it. You know, there's so much change that still needs to take place. And, and, and I sometimes get criticized by people who say, you know, I just, Anthony, it's all you want to do is talk about race. No, I can talk about other things too. But I think if, if we don't talk about this issue, it gets swept under the rug until the next incident happens. Because, you know, something else is going to happen. I mean, George Floyd, uh, that, that murder was, it, it, I mean, it had such a, profound effect on the whole world, not just in this country. And I thought, you know, that's not the last time we're going to see that. And sure enough, after that, there were five or six other killings. And, and, and we just have to just stay the course, stay there. And, and if I could ever be of any help to you, if you need fortification, if you need some, um, you know, a boost or something or a hand up or something like that gets you going, you know, you can count on me, okay? Thank you, Anthony. And I was going to add to what you were saying about this very, very imperfect journey towards becoming an anti-racist. I know that my journey is going to take a long time and a lot of commitment. But a couple of years ago, I think it was you that said to me that if real change is going to happen, it requires white people to start doing something about it. It can't just be black people protesting and yelling and objecting and bringing it up and talking about it. It has to also be white people going out into their communities and doing the same thing. And I don't know if I ever said to you, but I should tell you that has stuck with me all this time. And it has percolated in the back of my brain as I went and started reading anti-racist material this summer and going further and deeper into my journey to understand this issue in this country and then what my role is in supporting my black friends, supporting you, and then doing something about it. In mm -hmm. my yeah, that's the key because um, it's, it is exhausting, I think. And, and I think white people once, as you have, and I know some others have as well, they've, they've looked in the mirror and say, it begins with this person that I'm, that's staring back at me. I have to do something because I have been a beneficiary of this white privilege system and I have to use my privilege status to work for change. And I have to mm -hmm. um, put myself out there and take some risks that maybe this black person can't take. And, and you have a voice and you have relationships and, and people will respond to you differently than they will respond to me. Mm -hmm. And when you use your privilege status to say, I'm, being, I'm gonna be an advocate I'm not going to put the burden on you, Anthony. I'm just using this as an example. 
to be the person who's out there trying to correct the behavior and the attitudes of, of, of racist white people. White people have to challenge other white people to get this thing right. And I will confess, even having this conversation with you recorded is very difficult because as a person with white privilege, this has always been kind of an icky thing. I don't really want to talk about it in public because then I'm going to be judged. But then I have to remind myself that I'm not even black getting judged everywhere I go right. by, by the color of my skin. I can go in my house, take a nice little break. I can exit my house and take right. a nice break from it. I never say a word and no one would know. But people that are of color and people that are black, they can't do that. Right. And I remind myself of this when I start getting frustrated. Well, I'm glad you understand that. Well, let me say thank you once again, and uh, we will maybe do this again. It's been it's been a long time, and we've been wanting to get together and have some more conversations with COVID and all those things have just kept us uh, um, in going in different directions. I you know I think you you knew about my wife's cancer, and that's all better, and that kind of kept me going in a different direction as well. So. Um, let me just say goodbye to you, and I'm going to sign off here and just uh, tell my listeners again, this is looking back and moving forward, and please, you will be getting a notification. If you're listening to this now, you've already received a notification that this, um, this episode is up and running, and uh, if you have some ideas, um, contact me at A. Harris. 007 at Yahoo. If you have some ideas about future programs, uh, if you have some uh, remarks or some comments or some feedback about today's program, use that email address to contact me. I would appreciate it. So once again, thank you, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Okay.